Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. So happy you are here. My goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga, massage, body work, and beyond. Follow us at Native Yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com. All right, let's begin. Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, Native Yoga Center is located in beautiful Juno Beach, Florida, and online, wherever you are. Join me for practice. Click the free live stream link in the show notes and get your practice growing. I'm so happy to have Nona Maleva here visiting in Native Yoga Center. So we get to do an in-person podcast. Nona, how are you doing today? I am good. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you, Talat. Same as well. Uh, I got to meet you, Nona, because you came in very enthusiastically inquiring about yoga teacher training a few years ago, and you completed our 300-hour yoga teacher trainings, which brought you into like the RYT 500 realm. And you also are involved in teaching in Stewart at a place called District 108 in Stewart, Florida, and at the Powerhouse Gym in Stewart. And you also teach therapeutic yoga in some of the local retirement communities. Uh, you have recently completed getting your PhD in health psychology, and you're currently working toward uh, yoga therapy certification, which you said will be completed in December. So you've been very busy. That's something that I really admire about you is you love to study. You put a lot of time and energy into reading, studying, and your You've expressed a lot of uh, interest and enthusiasm for the history and the philosophy of yoga. And so that's why I'm really excited to have you here today because I can just pick your brain a bit and see what <laughs> kind of like top hits have made it onto your playlist for like yoga philosophy, yoga history. And so on that note, um, what is something that you have read about and or practiced or studied recently that's caught your attention that you're excited about? Oh, I love how you, you're beginning this conversation. <laughs> Thank you for the intro. First, um, yes, I have been busy and um, this is just, uh, what can I say, my mode of functioning, learning, being always curious about things and topics. So my latest uh, educational conquests, so to speak, or interests have been since COVID, uh, which, as you know, was a pretty... Uh, to some extent, a traumatic experience, but then in other, uh, uh, from a different perspective, uh, it opened new doors. Uh, it made us more creative, uh, looking for opportunities to yes. uh, keep doing what we love doing, which True. for us is yoga, obviously, if we are talking about it. Um, I have been, I began studying, um, doing yoga philosophy co uh, courses online with uh, Professor Edwin Bryant. Mm. He's one of the most renowned uh, names, uh, uh, Hindu uh, researchers and philosophers and translators um, in the field. Uh, he's at Rutgers University in, I think it's New Jersey or New York. So he, what he started doing is record all his lectures and then putting them out there online for free. Nice. For everyone. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it always amazes me when people uh, share their knowledge with such uh, uh, immense generosity. So 
that got me into the groove of um, daily or twice a week, um, sit down to those lectures or just doing my thing and listening to them. And uh, I pretty much, um, it, it's all there, all the six darshanas, the, the, uh, the schools of uh, various philosophical discourse in India. And uh, the man is a uh, very knowledgeable, uh, brilliant scholar. He he knows a lot about everything. His um, focus is his bhakti. Mm. He is initiated in this tradition. So, can you explain bhakti? So, uh, uh, in the discourse of yoga, uh, bhakti yoga is the the uh, yoga of devotion. It's the it's a kind of yoga that uh, is being practiced as a devotional yoga. Uh, the practitioners um, um, address uh, their attention, uh, their their energy towards. Uh, uh, a benevolent worship uh, of a deity in there in uh, this case uh, usually krishna is the um the subject of their affection uh there is lots of uh, mantra uh, chanting there there is a lot of uh, uh, kirtans and uh, dancing and singing um praising yep. praising yeah uh the bhagavan um so Think Bhagavata Purana, those uh, uh, ancient uh, texts, uh, all the Krishna stories. By the way, they're amazing, uh, amazingly entertaining and uh, interesting stories. If anyone um, uh, really wants to learn more about them, just uh, go read them there uh, with tremendous sense of humor also created uh, so many mm. years ago. Yeah. So we would sit through those. He would just open the text and two, three hundred people there, either live or from the recorded lectures, will be listening and then um, uh, following uh, uh, the stories. He would stop, he would comment. Uh, and this, uh, uh, this goes for um, every subject, uh, whether you want to learn about Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, whether you want to learn about uh, um, Vedanta Sutras or Nyaya mm. or... Uh, uh, the stories of Krishna. So that's what I kept doing for about a year. Then he started doing live Svadhyaya uh, sessions every Friday. Can you do this live? And I'm mm -hmm. imagining that there might be someone listening that doesn't know any of the Sanskrit terms. So that's why I might just stop you every now and again and let you define some of the words. So if someone's listening, that's like a brand new listener slash just coming into the yoga fold. Uh, there's a lot of Sanskrit terms that once you start to learn them, it gets easier and easier. Once you learn one, you learn another. And before you know it, you can listen to these really in-depth conversations about the yoga history and philosophy and know exactly what's going on. But in the beginning, it's really common to feel fish out of water. I have no idea what they're talking about. So on that note, can you define Swadhyaya for us? I will us? do that, all and right. apologies, you're correct, <laughs> no, I should right. yeah. But again, uh, and once you uh, uh, get to actually uh, work with those terms, uh, it becomes kind of a uh, second nature, and you don't think that, yes, yeah. there are indeed yeah. people who still haven't gotten there, so yeah. apologies again. Swadhyaya is the concept of um, studying. Um, so it could be defined as a studying about the self, the sva, the obtaining self-knowledge through a variety of practices. Mm -hmm. But it is, it does become by itself a practice. It could be even a spiritual practice. So you get to uh, 
uh, define it as, for example, spending time with the sacred texts. So you sit down and you study, you read the text from the Upanishads or from the later uh, uh, Puranas or uh, you open Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and this yes. is your weekend. Yeah. yeah. This is your weekend. Good answer. What are you doing? Oh, I'm doing yoga psychology. How? I'm just staring at Patanjali's Sutra number, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out. So Svadhyaya is that concept of, uh, um, in Bhakti, Svadhyaya is done Another, I'm throwing attention, I'm throwing another Sanskrit word in Sangha, which means pretty much your social group. Yeah. What is your, what is your community? Yeah. Let's hang together with the like-minded people yeah. and do our thing. What is our thing? We're reading the scripts. Yeah. Or yeah. in my case, I'm listening to someone much more knowledgeable, <laughs> an erudite, and uh, he's reading uh, the scripts, he's commenting on them. We get to uh, um, ask uh, questions. Was that the difference? So actually, let me back up a little bit. Is that something that anyone listening can go to Edwin Bryant or dot org? And by the way, at the end of the podcast, I'll be uh, happy to provide you with all the uh, uh, resources and links and the names that I'm throwing in here. Uh, so you can post it for your audience. And uh, I'll be so happy if uh, people actually uh, go there and look up at this stuff because there is so much uh, available, a wealth of information out there that uh, we just are not aware of. Yeah. So edwinbrand.org. Cool. That is his website. Yeah. It's connected to the Rutgers University. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the last uh, study I did with him was on the Upanishads. Uh, I think it was the, the – I forgot which one. See. My memory is also doesn't serve me always, but uh, <laughs> starting a couple of weeks from now, we are. He's doing a a, a six week or an eight week course on the Bhagavata Purana. He likes, he loves his uh, Bhakti story. So yeah, we, yeah. Uh, that kind of yoga, the devotional yeah. yoga, yeah. the the yoga of love. There, uh, there is a lot of kindness, and uh, and 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 love and compassion about this concept. I. I, I just even listening to someone who's so who has devoted pretty much uh, uh, his life and and uh, passion to that. Yeah, I think it's amazing. It is amazing. Mm -hmm. It obviously takes a uh, cultivating it over a long period of time, little by little. Before you know it, you have these. You understand these stories a little better. It makes sense, and right. that's cool. So it sounds like the interaction process with that particular training method was that. The first way you started listening to his philosophy teachings was not interactive. And then that the Swadhyaya ones was where you could maybe type in questions into the chat box. Is that how that was going All down? All of the above. Yeah. So you can do either. You can. So the, the pre-recorded lectures are pre-recorded lectures. They're lectures for students. So we as uh, some kind of external uh, uh, just observers or audience, uh, uh, neutral audience, we have no access to the direct communication. We watch the recordings. Uh, but because the content is all out there, you yep. can watch it at any time. You can yep. rewatch it. Yeah. Uh, the Svadhyaya sessions are live sessions, but Got he it. also records them and Got then it. posts them online. So if you miss a Friday, yeah, you really want to go for that happy hour yeah. Friday and Svadhyaya yeah. is not your thing that, that day, <laughs> yeah. then, uh, then you'll watch it or listen to it the next day. Nice. So on that note, you mentioned that his love and passion is toward the, uh, like 
the bhakti text what is what do you gravitate toward i know there's so many different texts to study and i know you can probably gain benefit and insight out of reading any and all of them but what do you connect with the most if you had like a ishta devata so like an ishta devata is a personal deity that you might connect with at some point when you start reading these stories um what would be like your ishta devata text uh, it Do you would have be, one? Uh, well, it would be all the stories uh, uh, of Krishna, of the blue-skinned yeah, Krishna yeah, and his yeah. mischievous uh, 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 young years. And um, uh, Krishna is an avatar, uh, an avatar, uh, just to explain, it's a... Uh, um, in in uh, in the broad context of Hindu philosophy, we are going to encounter many deities or many uh, divine uh, 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 creatures that are some kind of an extension or or just uh, uh, another uh, uh, exemplification of a larger deity, deity. For example, so we have heard of, of Vishnu as a god of sustenance and um, and maintaining the balance and uh, cosmic order. Krishna is one of uh, Vishnu's uh, uh, avatar uh, expressions. Yeah. So uh, Krishna, for those of us who have studied yoga, who are familiar with some of the, the scriptures, Krishna is a main character in uh, um, what has already become a canonical text in the West, the Bhagavad Gita, part of uh, the largest uh, Indian epos, uh, Mahabharata. And uh, Krishna pretty much, uh, uh, and I'm sure that most people have heard about the Hare Krishna uh, hymn and chanting. And uh, if you see, you know, these people with the flowers and the, the shaved heads and just always in a good mood and chanting and uh, picking up on that vibe of, uh, of uh, let's all be good to each other. Yeah. Yes. Let's all be kind to each other. Don't we need that, Todd? Even in the current context of, of the, the where the world is and how it is. Definitely. And something that someone yesterday had mentioned to me, how come I don't see that type of thing anymore? And mm-hmm. so the person that asked that is, you know, they stay home a lot. So that obviously could be one of the answers that, you know, if you go out to different areas where you might encounter, say, Krishna devotees. Um, the last time I was down in South Beach, there in Miami, there was a group of Krishna consciousness devotees that were chanting Hare Krishna, and they all had okay. orange robes on, and they had their hair set up, and they were going for it in, you know, down in South Beach, which is not your most likely area to see that. Um, but I, my answer to her when she asked that was, well, there's still... That's still going on out there, but you're right. I mean, where I live, well, we live in the States. We're in, here in Florida. I mean, um, you know, we don't see a lot of that sort of like flower power. I have never actually um, seen it here. You're correct. <laughs> you yes. know, Krishna devotees chanting. Right. You know, obviously if we go to India, there's going to be devotees chanting all day long, walking the streets. There's a parade at every hour. There's a different religious tradition right. um, celebrating a culture or a, a holiday every single day. And, you know, it's full of that. I do. I don't think we have that so much here on that same level as in India, but I guess in relation to 
someone saying, how come I don't see that anymore? It does kind of feel like there's not a lot of people willing to kind of fly their freak flag for peace and equality Maybe. in a peaceful way. I don't know. What do you think? I That made me think about... What is it? Is it the political and cultural climate of the mm. last few years? Yeah. Maybe people, yeah. that that option of self-expression uh, of their values and their choices is something that they are kind of reluctant to do. It's a sad uh, idea that yeah. why yeah. not? Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that I would be yeah. one of those advocating, yeah. Yeah. hey, we need yeah. more of that. Yeah. To be honest, when I hung out with the Krishna devotees when I lived in Gainesville, when we would go and chant Hare Krishna in public, I had a very nerve wracking time with that. So like if we were hanging at the temple right. and we were chanting Hare Krishna amongst everyone who's into it, it was like no problem. But as soon as we would take that out into the public, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Like I'm not so comfortable all of a sudden. Well, so maybe it. it's that, a personal thing, it you know. Is, and it's not surprising. We still this in our society here. This is to a large extent. Uh, uh, there is still the stigma, even of yoga. Even though yoga is such a popular uh, uh, subject and practice, you can still hear. Uh, uh, strong religious fundamentalistic uh, 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 you know sentiments about how yoga is the work of the devil and this and the other so on that note may I tell you something else oh, exciting please go for it so we we uh, I will transition you and your listeners from this was all about uh, the history of yoga and uh, studying with someone who by the way uh, Edwin Bryan has some of I think my personal opinions one of the most uh, wonderful and uh, um really uh, profound translations of uh, the Yoga Sutra of uh, Patanjali. And he has also combined with all the commentaries there. It's a, it's a great addition, if anyone wants to look into it. Um, in the past five years, I have been following, I mean, there was not much to follow during the process, but at the beginning, at the end, uh, something that now you will be hearing more and more about. Um, have you heard of the, the Hatha Project? I at did. The source. Yes, I I have actually. I just had a conversation with uh, a podcast that I'll release right before this one with you okay, awesome. was with uh, Eric, a man named Eric who is a yoga philosopher, okay. and he had just mentioned it. All right, so yep. I'll be happy so, to, to elaborate. So on it two days in a row now, I'm getting hit with the same thing. Excellent. So there's got to be a, a reason here. Passionate about it. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, in my personal opinion, um, something very important is happening out there. Uh, a brand new generation of new, enthusiastic, knowledgeable uh, um, scholars choose yoga, uh, choose, uh, uh, choose to find new things about the history, about how things came mm. uh, to be, yeah. and uh, choose to enlighten us and to share uh, uh, facts and, and scripts that no one knew uh, about. So in other words... Um, that whole trend is is uh, uh, underlying something I find uh, uh, extremely s significant, that yoga is a living organism. Yoga is not some kind of a fossilized uh, uh, structure or, or a, a made-up uh, platform that, you know, you just dig out as a dinosaur bone and stare it and never change it. Yoga changes, adapts, 
mm. according to yes. the environment, to the cultural milieu, to the to the uh, influences, right? Yeah, and that yeah. makes it awesome. Yes. And on that note, here is what these guys have been working on. So about five years ago, I'm not sure what your previous uh, um, participant uh, has shared, but about five years ago. Um, Scholars of yoga and Sanskrit and uh, uh, religious histories get together in a group uh, through SOAS University in London. Uh, James Mallinson, your listeners might, might have heard the name from uh, the Hatha Yoga uh, uh, book and the history of Hatha Yoga, I'm sorry. Also together with the next name I'm going to mention, Mark Singleton, who became uh, uh, more famous with the Yoga Body book, uh, that kind of raised eyebrows and uh, stirred some uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, conversations about 10, 12 years ago. I think it came out in 2010. So Mark Singleton, Jim Mallinson, another scholar who's best known for his work and research on Raja Yoga. So while uh, 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 Jim Mallinson and Mark Singleton, they're more into the Hatha uh, uh, history, Raja Yoga is the specialty of uh, um uh, Jason Birch is the name uh, of the researcher and his wife, Jacqueline, uh, for the life of me, cannot remember uh, the last name. I hope she forgives me. Fantastic people, uh, people with uh, with true love and passion of finding more and more. So they got a nice grant and uh, started working on that five-year project. Uh, there was another lady, Daniela Bivuakwa. Uh, she... Her kind of a, a, a branch of that research was uh, studying the modern ascetics in India. Mm. So they get to do field work. Can you imagine how awesome that is? Yeah. They get the money, yeah. they get to go to India, they yeah. get to do the field work, uh, visit anywhere between 20 and 40 libraries, which is immense. Yes. Go through all the uh, uh, the challenges and the loopholes of trying to deal with the Indian librarian system, mm. which is most people would close their doors to you. And these are things I did not know until I actually got involved with these people. I did their courses, listened to their lectures, read their books. Uh, do you know that it could be practically impossible to obtain uh, an ancient manuscript, no matter what version and how many times it has been copied before that if the librarian for example looks at you and decides that ah those europeans they're going to put me out of business if i just give them a copy of the manuscript mm, right yeah and they digitalize it and god forbid uh, take it away yeah I'm sorry away from me yeah so uh i can only imagine how much uh, how much uh, um persistence and, <laughs> yeah. and good women discipline yeah. one needs to yeah. really employ yeah. To yeah. endure those kind of, uh, uh, they also, uh, Jason Birch was telling a story once of how they get to a library, they pull the manuscript they want to investigate, research and translate. And because the librarian is just some young kid who couldn't care less about <laughs> the importance and the value this piece of paper has uh, for us, pulls it out of the binder, the thing disintegrates, pieces of it fall on the floor <laughs> And Jason Burch's wife says, and here I am on my knees down there trying to gather the pieces yeah. almost in tears because oh, to wow. us this has, this has a tremendous value, yeah. right? Yeah. So not to launch too much into it, I don't want to take too much time, but what they did was they um, pretty much, uh, um, they just wanted to figure out, okay, where is this thing coming from? Yeah. Is Hatha Yoga really 
5,000 years old, like some claim out there. Is there yeah. something? What yeah. is going on? Yeah. Uh, in conclusion, and uh, to anyone interested, we'll post, uh, uh, if you like, uh, uh, links Absolutely. and resources, because yes. I think it's a fascinating opportunity to learn more about yoga. This is contemporary yoga research. Yeah. On my book, in my book, nothing beats that. Yeah. No happy hour on Friday. Yeah. I'll be sitting there and reading all about that. Um, Jim Mallison, I think he already published the text. It's called Amrita City. Pretty much kind of turning the concept of uh, the Hatha came from the Nat tradition. Probably not, because Amrita City turns out to be from a Buddhist milieu. <laughs> mm-hmm. And even though the word Hatha is not mentioned... All the practices there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. From, and you're saying from the not sex, the not sect, N A T H, the uh-huh. not, not yeah. from them yeah. like Matien, Matiendra yeah. not or yeah. uh, Goraksha not. So yeah. it's a, it's a uh, um, tantric. Uh, uh, and what time period are they 11th, trying to? 12th century. Gotcha. So yeah. Note uh, for those yeah. of us who have studied yoga, I'll still reiterate for the listeners uh, we have one major text that we consider to be the most valuable contribution to informing us about the practices of the Hatha Yoga, that's Hatha Yoga Pradipika. This does not come about around uh, until 1450, maybe even later. So we're talking 15th century AD, right? Mm -hmm. Now we, after that project, all of a sudden, few other manuscripts come out of uh, the obscured uh, libraries of India. And it turns out that three Four centuries prior to that, we already are talking about those practices. Mm. Uh, here are those. And pretty much the discussion is uh, uh, being uh, repeated in the next text. Now, Jason Birch uh, um, researches the Raja Yoga text. Jim Mallinson and uh, Mark Singleton go for the Hatha, for the what now in modern yoga research is being called a history of postural yoga. Because now they're defining, so to speak, a new category. Mm. So there is yoga, yeah, and there is a posture yoga, yeah. I know distinct that to, to, from yeah. hatha yoga. So this making a distinction between hatha yoga and quote postural uh, yoga. Well, hatha yoga would be right. So hatha yoga would be the beginning of the postural yoga tradition. Well, actually, the posture of the modern postural yoga tradition now not until probably not it, even. A, Probably a century ago. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And that is another part of their research that they uh, they are very uh, um, invested uh, uh, academically into, of uh, of researching how, what kind of a uh, um, interconnectedness exists out there between some of those hatha practices and some of the influences of modernity of mm. colonialism. 
yeah. of European gymnastics, if you wish, just like Swedish gymnastics, or yeah. even of bodybuilding uh, uh, practices in India at that time. Yeah. How about the nationalistic uh, um, aspect of this uh, uh, of this whole presentation? Because India was occupied by the the Brits, right? Yes. And uh, and uh, at some point, it turns out through that very thorough historical research that. Uh, that postural yoga, that look at me, strong spirit in the strong body became kind of a metaphorical, almost an emotional expression of we are strong. We want to be mm. united mm. around something that's ours, that's inherently, uh, uh, anciently belonging to us. Mm. Um, so these are the kind of things that the, those uh, uh, scholars have been researching for years. The Hatha Project has now published a few of those texts. Uh, for the, so they're translated, uh, and this is really if you if you really want to read about okay this pose that I'm seated right now where did it come from? Yeah. So then yeah. you go uh, yeah. back there. You're an Ashtanga practitioner. You teach Ashtanga. Well, you might actually be uh, um, curious to see that some of the things we do in Ashtanga, like what we would call Janushirshasana B, exist as something called Mahamudra mm-hmm. in those texts. Yeah. Yeah. Or what we call Dandasana exists as a, a Mahabanda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an 11th century text or like 12th century text. So yes. yeah. I find this extremely exciting. Yeah. Some yeah. people may think, why would that be exciting? This is weird. Because, because uh, we love the practice. We, because we have had experience with the practice, we teach uh, uh, the practice. We have also observed the profound changes the practice uh, creates in us and others. Uh, to me, it's uh, 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 it's of uh, importance to know. I really want to study the roots. Yeah, I really want to study the roots. It's my, you know, different people to have uh, different. Um, how should they say that? Epistemological frameworks. Epistemology means in philosophy uh, refers to a term of how we know the things that we know. Mm. I mean, my epistemological framework is language. I come from a linguistic background. Uh, what other languages do you speak? Uh, so I, I have five years, uh, my young years, I actually spent studying ancient Greek and Latin. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but yeah. Um, then French, Russian, Bulgarian, my native language, obviously. Uh, I tried a little Italian once, but not much of that. On that note, I don't want to forget to mention something very important in regards to that new modern research. They came up, this whole research that kind of goes under the umbrella of a theoretical framework of something called uh, embodied philology. I'm going to explain uh, philology being the term of uh, uh, connoting the work with, with text and working with linguistic structures. And you look at the text and you translate or you you um, analyze the, the grammatical structures and the syntax. Based on that, you get to really uh, uh, better elaborate on uh, the authenticity of when was it created and things like that. But embodied philology... This is what they did for five years. They went manuscript hunting. They found those ancient texts. And while translating, they were doing the practices. Mm. And I think that this is probably the part that gets me the most, that this is a 
pretty uh, 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 clear and cut case of a fantastic phenomenological research yeah. from a first yeah. person yeah. experience. You get to experience the practice, and then how can that how could that not inform? your knowledge, how could that not fuel your, your consciousness and your attention in a way that, wow, I really get to understand that text better. So this is what these people have been doing. Um, and if you'd like, we'll post links to that as well. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but I'm not surprised that other people are excited about it. <laughs> oh, right. I, it, you came into yoga first and then started to get interested in philosophy or did you start reading um, philosophy first and then get on your yoga mat and start practicing? Um, so um, I have to say that I have done many different things in my life, but it, at where I am at that point of my life now, serious mid, middle age, uh, I see in hindsight how everything comes together. Uh, I started, as I already mentioned, at a very young age. In a, uh, you don't have exactly uh, uh, an equivalent to that kind of education here in the States, but imagine an IB program that lasts for five years. And that was ancient, ancient cultures and languages that I studied. This is at what age? Like high school? Uh, high school. Yeah. Between 8 and, and 12 grades. And you said IB, like inter... Like an international ba uh, baccalaureate, baccalaureate prog program, program yep. but it lasts five years as opposed to... Well, actually, yeah, it's five years here in the high schools as yeah. well, right? Okay. I'm not sure if they have ancient, like if they have programs like that about uh, yeah. Um, yeah. classical philologists, because yeah. this is what I studied. So yeah. five years, you're pretty much what these guys with the Hatta project did. You yeah. sit down... You study Latin and Greek, you read Homer, yeah. <laughs> Odyssey and Iliad, yeah. you read the, yeah. uh, all the great, uh, great uh, Roman um, writers and uh, uh, political uh, uh, debaters there. And, um, and this, is, this is your youth, okay? At the time, it sounded very boring to me. Uh, but the emphasis was on those cultures, on mythology, on uh, cultural studies. Yep. Um, Joseph Campbell was someone I, I spent five years of my life with, practically with his books and his uh, uh, Mircea Eliade, as you know, another yes. uh, another prominent scholar, older scholar of yoga, because obviously um, you can already sense some kind of a creative tension between the old school and the new school of, of researchers and scholars. Uh, things are coming to surface that... Uh, put into question even the dating mm, of all mm -hmm. those uh, materials we currently read yeah, and, and talk yeah, about. Yeah. So there is actually a few modern scholars out there put it uh, uh, out for debate. Uh, uh, if Merceliade or Furstein's uh, dating is correct, they say, no, it's thousand years off or something like that. That's exciting. Yeah, yoga yeah. is evolving. So yeah. are we. Let's yeah. see what happens. Yeah. So that was my youth. Then I went into philology. I studied uh, uh, my first master's degrees in uh, um, Slavic philologies. Pretty much you study Slavic languages. Uh, I studied uh, Croatian and Bulgarian, mm. Russian, ancient uh, Slavic languages. Um, then later on, I went into psychology. I studied transpersonal psychology and theories of consciousness. You see how everything is coming together? Yes. Together yeah. towards from yes. theories of consciousness. Uh, so somewhere in my uh, uh, college years, I got interested in yoga. I wrote actually a paper on uh, 
comparison between the uh, psychoenergetic uh, uh, um, qualities of the chakras and uh, <laughs> Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Mm. And nice. so, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if it was really that well written, but at the time it sounded exciting. Now, that many, 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 many years later, I'm thinking, well, I don't want to read that paper. Who knows what I said then? But yeah. uh, Because again... <laughs> everything is a matter of perspective. Uh, You're informed from different sources now. Life has happened. Your experience has changed and you see things in a different way. But then, so that was, that was, I was in my early twenties. Do I have to say how many years ago? Yeah. So it's been on and off that interest. Mm -hmm. Then that program of uh, transpersonal psychology and theories of consciousness and spirituality kind of reignited that passion. Mm. When you study consciousness, it inevitably you're going to touch upon all those concepts. Yeah. You're going to read about those perennial philosophies. You're going to encounter modern philosophers like Ken Wilber, like uh, Jorge Ferrer, uh, that uh, uh, really describe that kind of a Ferrer. Jorge Ferrer, a prominent transpersonal psychology, uh, speaks about our participatory contribution, how we all, in a creative way, contribute to in a way, some kind of a common database, a spiritual database, an informational database. Mm. Carl Jung may, may uh, use his psychological, uh, you know, terms of uh, uh, collective unconscious. In transpersonal psychology, Carl Jung and depth psychology is a big part of uh, uh, of that uh, uh, um, of that paradigm. And uh, Carl Jung was also another modern uh, uh, psychologist who went to in India to study yoga mm. because it's so fascinating, fascinating to all of us. It does seem like if you, if you go down the philosophy pathway that, and you got a very traditional from a European sense, like, you know, Greek and, you know, uh, Socrates and uh, you said Roman philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, that at some point you're going to stumble or, clearly just head straight toward Indian philosophy. Would you agree? I mean, inevitably. Yeah, absolutely. Do you now in your, because you've put a lot of emphasis and focus on the yoga philosophy path, Mm -hmm. do you go back to Greek philosophy? Do you go back to these, you know, do you go back and read Kim Wilbur? Do you still have interest in these different transpersonal psychology philosophies or do you, uh, so you're now kind of, going across all these different fields and when, you know, if somebody's listening, that's like, well, I've only really been going to yoga class and I haven't read or studied any philosophy and you're making me curious. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe I do want to take a step in that direction. Where do you think, and I know each person would gravitate toward like you'll be pulled. So if you are pulled to reading Socrates, then go for it. And there's going to be a lot of similarities in terms of Socratic dialogue and, um, you know, that constantly asking ourselves the question of, you know, who am I? And then we look at, well, in, in the Indian tradition, it's very similar in terms of, um, the jnana yoga traditions of just, you know, going deeper and deeper. Who am I? Who am I? So what would you recommend if someone was just starting off, where would you point them? 
if someone was just starting off, I would say, I would say, you have to honor the tradition you're beginning within, from which you're, you're beginning. So, and that be yoga. And in that case, something as classical and again emblematic as Bhagavad Gita. And I'm not saying Patanjali, please know that, even though it's my favorite text, because pretty much that summarizes to me the, the definition of what yoga is. <laughs> uh, but uh, the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, and this is, uh, uh, this is a very short text, part of, I think I began the conversation with that of a much larger uh, epos. Oh, that's another thing I studied, the entire uh, grade, eight and nine grade. We studied Mahabharata. Wow. <laughs> I know. In eighth grade. In eighth grade. Eighth and ninth. Imagine. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't eighth think we were that grade. much. Sure. Eighth and ninth grade. Tackling mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Mahabharata. Yes, but I would go, uh, probably, I would say, read that script. Read that story. Uh, I am pretty sure that there are many things in this text that would resonate with everyone. Yeah. It could be a personal yeah. Uh, a way of, of uh, uh, absorbing that uh, the material, that wisdom. Uh, also be advised that every time you read, this, you read this particular text, it would look like it's a new text to you. Yes. It's something you almost have never read before. Yeah. Because in a very peculiar, yet I think, to my understanding, very logical way, it will resonate with whatever your current psychological or emotional experience is you will derive a different meaning from it. You might also attribute some meaning to it that also correlate with your, where you are in life or uh, right yeah. now. Yeah. So that would be something I would advise. Open Bhagavad Gita, get a copy of it. Yeah. There are pretty uh, 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 good translations out there. Yes. Read it once, read it like a story, yeah. like a bedtime story. Yeah. And uh, ask the questions, ask the hard questions. You, you yeah. said it well, these are, these are the good, I spoke about epistemology, these are good ontological questions. These are the, you know, the big questions. Can you define ontology? Ontology would be, so if epistemology is the definition of epistemology is how we, what kind of knowledge we employ, how we know the things that we know, ontology would be, what are the big questions? Why am I is an ontological question, existential question, of gotcha. existential importance. Yes. What is God? How I find out about God would be an epistemological approach. Epistemological approach. Mm. Uh, in in um, Indian philosophy, the school of Nyaya would be a school that deals with those concepts. Uh, uh, what is knowledge? What is the essence of knowledge? And now we get into... We are Westerners thought. We are going to place our framework, our Socratic or Aristotelian framework, we're going to impose and then later uh, modern, more modern philosophers on those Eastern uh, uh, thinkers and scholars, and may I say brilliant scholars. Uh, it doesn't always fit. Yeah. There yeah. are lots of, you're correct, there are lots of uh, uh, relevant uh, uh, connections we can make. And in some ways, there is something that you have to embody that mindset mm. in order to be able to fully understand and comprehend. How do we do that? I only have one answer for you. Yoga. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the experience. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how many different schools you will encounter in Hindu philosophy, mm. 
they disagree on fundamental things. I mean, they pretty much argue about everything. Their polemics are vigorous, sometimes aggressive. It's yes. just fascinating to yes. read them. Pretty much everyone agrees on one thing. Yoga is the way. Yoga is the praxis. Yoga is the method. Do yoga and it will all come clear. Nice. <laughs> if I'm, what other practice do you do apart from Hatha Yoga that you integrate into your daily routine that uh, helps to support your, your Swadhyaya, your study of sacred texts? So my Swadhyaya is a, my, my favorite practice. Uh, my, my asana practice is also uh, something I cannot go without. It's my daily thing. I always joke that this is my therapy. Yes. This is it. Yeah. My breathing practices, I have to have it, even if it's just five minutes. Yeah. Depending on what the situation requires, I'll do either Nadi Shodana. This is a nostril breathing uh, practice. You alternate between left and right. Sometimes uh, you close one, uh, open the other. Uh, and there are a couple of variations. Sometimes I'll just sit there and just make the exhales longer. Mm. Like a dirga pranayam, three, three part breaths, just belly breathing, quieting. Um, there is this sweetness of shutting, shutting off <laughs> the external noise that I, I cherish. Um, I have been experimenting since I, I started following those guys I just spoke so passionately about. I have been experiencing with some of their practices. I mean, not their, but the practices from those uh uh, manuscripts, uh, uh, like the, the third eye uh, meditation, you bring your attention to the point between the, uh, uh, eyebrows and, but you do not close your eyes. Man, is that tough? Mm. Like try to just sit there and just uh, imagine that yes. space, but do yes. not close your eyes and just keep focusing your attention while breathing. The other interesting, another interesting, uh, um, practice is, uh, in, it's a practice of internal resonance. So you can begin with, say, just applying pressure on your ears to kind of uh, 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 shut off the, the uh, sensory, the auditor input. Inevitably, you start hearing a bit of an internal noise and then you focus on that. Mm. It's yes. fascinating. Yes. Then you let go. You can allow the, you remove your thumbs for your ears. Yeah. Yeah. But that sound somehow stays with you. And if you keep practicing, it comes to you in the most weird moments of the day when it's almost like your nervous system telling you, uh-uh, you're nearing that point. You need a break. And that kind of a very gentle inner business appears, mm. which is kind of a good signifier or indicator or just a reminder to, all right, I may want to just sit in my car for five minutes and take that break. Yes, yeah. It has yeah. become, I'm liking it more and more. I cannot uh, uh, claim that I can sit for meditation more than 30 minutes. Um, anything over 25, 30 minutes, um, I don't feel, it doesn't feel good in my knees. Um, sometimes my blood pressure drops if I get deep into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but it's a work in progress. And sometimes my mind just wouldn't do it. Sometimes it'd just be do your headstand, do your pranayama, and then that's it. Yeah. How has your relationship to pain evolved in relation to your practice and study of yoga and or yoga philosophy? 
Um, let me let me choose how to carefully verbalize that because I have a pretty strong opinion about it and not everyone <laughs> might be willing to agree with me. Um, and my opinion would also be influenced and obviously informed by my very uh, in-depth studies of uh, uh, the therapeutic modalities of yoga, which I did a research on and I'm doing with my yoga therapy program. In many regards... The practice of yoga or uh, uh, supportive uh, uh, approaches and interventions might not completely eradicate your pain, but it would definitely and dramatically change your relationship to the pain, which I think is the biggest victory one can, can really dream of. It changes your perception of pain which is pretty much your experience of pain. It uh, minimizes the sharpness of the sensory experience of the pain. Uh, once you become, you truly become an embodied being and you, you, you understand the signals of your body, you know how to neutralize any triggers or at least to do your best to neutralize them. Um, it makes a day and night difference, Todd. Yeah. It yeah, does. Yeah. And I see it. I cannot emphasize enough how often I see that in my practice, in my teachings, in my personal private practice with uh, uh, yoga therapy approaches. I People uh, 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 come with that, uh, their face, they're lit up. They come and they have tears in their eyes. And, and I'm sure you're way more experienced teacher and practitioner of yoga than me. You have seen this. Uh, uh, I have people, they'll have a, the emotional episode during a session or a class, then they would come and they want to talk to me and they would uh, uh, elaborate in details of how exactly this has happened. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point because <clears throat> can you say that you because, so I have pain, so I'm going to go to yoga because I want to get rid of pain and that's something that we all do and not necessarily with yoga, but we might go, I want to go to doctor mm -hmm. and then we might choose the path of give me some type of painkiller mm -hmm. or another approach is to go to some type of physical therapy, right. which is geared toward helping us to learn new patterns of movement so that we can come out of pain. Um, and or we approach yoga. And so then my own personal experience of like, okay, let me now do a fairly vigorous style of yoga. And am I feeling more pain because of the intensity that I'm putting into the physical practice? And or is it alleviating pain and or this concept that we've come across that, okay, there's like a psychological barrier and the pain is coming up because of unprocessed emotion and or feeling, which is a very slippery slope, you know, to, to tread on because maybe pain is just pain, you know, pain is just straight up pain. And then you come across this idea of, okay, a Buddha being enlightened and, you know, this idea that there would never be suffering again. So of course I want to achieve that. Wouldn't that be wonderful to reach enlightenment and feel not feel pain or suffering ever again? But then the more I look into it, I don't think that that's really what these teachings are saying is that you're never going to feel pain again. It's like what you said. It's, our, it's the relationship 
to pain, the experience, the like almost like, ex- like, uh, because life has pain that, well, I'm alive. So at least if I have pain, I'm still alive. Cause we know for, a f- hmm. I'm pretty sure for a fact that when we die, we won't feel the bodily pain anymore. Pretty sure. Right. I'm not sure. I don't know 100% what happens, but um so I guess for me pain has been a pain is a big part of what I'm navigating every day. You know, when I wake up and I'm like, "Wow, my knee. Whoa, yeah. there's my back. Wow, what is this thing going on? Holy cow." And, you know, but then I get on my mat every single day and I start moving and, you know, some days it's really easy. Some days it's really challenging, but somehow you work through it, you move through it. And then obviously that's just one aspect of yoga where, you know, I'm going to try to utilize these movement practices to somehow cope with, manage. I mean, I still hold this high ideal that I'll figure out how to not have pain at all, but I'm starting to come to terms maybe because I'm also approaching my fifties that youngster, (laughs) (laughs) there's no escape. I mean, come on. Like, you know, I look at my, my, um, the people I look up to my elders and, and they share with me, whoa, Todd, getting old is not for the faint of heart. Get ready, you know? And, I go, whoa, okay, because if I'm feeling what I'm feeling now, tack on another 20, 30, 40, <laughs> and how is this going to be? So, I mean, it's, it's a really, you know, to think about age and to think about, you know, our, our, our life and our aging process. And like you said, I agree 100% that when I recently, I, when I was in my 20s, I lived in Australia and I created a shoebox full of pictures and diaries and all that stuff. And a friend of mine held on to them for me and just recently sent them to me. So there's like 20 years ago, I have not opened it yet. Oh, that, Do you know that what I mean? Because like how you said, it's like <laughs> things have changed and like, right. do I really need to base my worldview off of, at, you know, in that moment, my worldview was so wild and tumultuous and I've aged and I'm so thankful that I've aged. Right. So that's, and that's the beauty of it. Right. So it's got this really paradox of like, I want to get older because of all the good things that come. And at the same time, I'm realizing that it, that there is sensation and that, you know, it's just an everyday process to navigate. So I don't, I don't know if I have a point or if I have a question here. And I'll address it in a very uh, uh, scholarly way, if you don't mind. I'll answer with Patanjali. (laughs) Sarvam dukam. (laughs) That's it. That life is, it's suffering. (laughs) Deal with it, to say it in the American way. Yeah. Yeah. How to transcend Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. (laughs) For your listeners. What I just said is uh, uh, probably the most important line in uh, uh, this Patanjalian text uh, uh, that uh, yoga is the quieting of the fluctuations of the mind. How? I'll say it in Sanskrit again. Tadadrishtu svarupe vastanam. And then the seer abides in his own nature. In other words, we quiet the mind. We allow pure consciousness to just settle in become conscious of its own nature, and we shut everything else out. Easier said than done. 
But what uh, uh, all those elaborate Sanskrit uh, uh, attempts were um, just to 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 uh, solidify that point we're making. Uh, we are not trying to divide things in pleasure and pain. It's just too simplistic, I think. Pain is pain. It's part of life. We're not exactly being masochistic, embracing the, the painful experience because, oh yes, if I'm in pain, I'm, I'm alive. I'm alive. That is true. You are alive. Um, you're more, more or less embracing the natural rhythm of things. Just think about it. You and I would not be able to have that conversation 20 or 30 years ago. I'm pretty sure, pretty certain, because in order to mature, mature to certain perspectives and points of view, in order to even be able to ask the question, what is pain? Not on a simple physical level, but how do we deal with uh, emotional, psychological pain? That's a, that's a matter of like a later, more mature stage of life, mm. which is, this is when philosophy and I'm not saying there are not young people out there who just, they came to this world with that kind of a predisposition towards philosophy and the deeper questions in life. To me, they came later in life. So now I get to indulge. Um, but all that point to a very important quality of yoga. Uh, because to me, uh, the strength of yoga is that yoga is, to my knowledge, and in my opinion, probably the best uh, tool and method and concept for self-regulation and yeah. and if we quiet the mental activities if we can modulate that if we can find our way to really uh, uh, navigate the cognitive processes the brain will reduce those pain signals the mm. nervous system will react yeah. accordingly in simple terms if you start lengthening your exhales through the activation of the vagus nerve, you will activate certain neural platforms that would send uh, appropriate messages from the uh, to the parasympathetic nervous system, telling the body, relax, quiet, yeah. soothe yeah. the pain, feel yeah. less, yeah. Uh, minimize the acuteness. Science has a lot to say about this stuff. Yeah. How Patanjali knew about it, I know, and, and uh, yeah. everyone before him, I'm not exactly clear, but that is the mystery of yoga, yes. and I'm not giving that up, yes. no matter how many contemporary researchers, uh, uh, you know, appear. I, uh, I'm, I'm an absolute uh, believer in the, in the, the power, uh, mystery, and deep wisdom of, uh, of uh, the philosophy that, uh, that uh, underlies that entire method of, of yogic practice and teaching. Yes. So it's all here. It's all in the mind. For your listeners, I'm pointing my index <laughs> finger to my head. Yeah. <laughs> and yoga helps with that thought. Good you come point, to the uh, mat. You, uh, uh, if you're in pain, it's, it doesn't work like that. It's not a, 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 such a mechanical approach you cannot apply. You can't just walk into the room and do one uh, Ashtanga class and be like, okay, I'm healed. Or, oh my God, what was that? You know, it's either or. No, 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 no. You have to walk the walk. Yep. It's a practice, yep. Yep. and the practice is a process. Yep. You have to use patience. You have to endure certain uh, uh, moments of, I am going to crawl out of my skin. What am I doing here? Not because of the pain, because the chitta vritti, the unquieting of the mind is active, and God knows what's going on in your head. Yes. And when you think about it, you, you, you actually be able to discern the experience of thinking about the pain and actually experiencing the pain. Mm -hmm. You can work with those two approaches as well. Uh, you have to uh, anchor your attention. You have to do your breathing. You have to allow 
the experience to settle in before you actually state an opinion on whether this is helping or not. Yes. 99% out of 100, you'll be back. Yeah. You have to keep coming back. And then at some point it becomes part of your day. You become to know these things about yourself. You become to know these things about your behavior. Because let's not forget, yoga is not just a physical practice. It's not only a breathing practice. It's a behavioral practice as well, right? There are moral values Mm. that we need to address here, right? right. You cannot be the best yoga practitioner on the mat and be the biggest jerk out there off the mat. Then Mm -hmm. you're not doing yoga, excuse me. I don't care how good you are in your uh, whichever pose you're choosing. Um, When all this gets integrated together, then some certain spiritual perspectives start sneaking in. Then with that awareness, you start relating to yourself and to others differently. It changes things. It, you notice repatterning, you notice behavioral changes, you notice emotional stabilization. That's what yoga does. And let me tell you, it sneaks up on you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's, of course, I mean it in a positive, uh, with a positive uh, uh, energy and, and connotation. Um, yes. It becomes you. What yes. is yoga? It becomes a way of thinking, a, a way of living, uh, an authentic way of, of being being you. These are my values. This is what I believe in. And I would like to express them through yoga. And because again, back to the beginning of the conversation, yoga is this organic moving organism. You, you give yourself permission to make your own contribution to that practice. Right? I I honestly thought thing that we love our uh, practicing groups and everything. I also think that yoga is very solitary practice. And I love that about yoga. Yeah. It's a yeah. very unique individual experience. Thank you, Nona. Ah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. I feel honored to be here. Thank you for oh, having I really, me. I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, I was looking forward to this. I know we talked about this like months ago and then summer came around and you were traveling, you're in Europe and... And I also like the fact that you were willing to not have me give you notes ahead of time to prepare because right. <laughs> um, I think that off the cuff and speaking from our hearts and minds is is just a good way to keep it nice and yeah. down to earth. And so I, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you again. And is there anything that you would like to close with for us? Is there any other thought that's come to your attention yes, that you want to share. very important. Uh, big namaha and uh, thank you to my great teachers, present company, especially included, mm-hmm. uh, because Todd, uh, um, had it not been for that experience that I have with you, with, uh, uh, with the community of Native Yoga, uh, of, uh, uh, I might have not experienced the reigniting of that spark of interest into all those subjects. And uh, that had made my, my life, my practice, my personal and professional life uh, um, in reinvigorated. Uh, I find every day to be especially meaningful. I wake up with, uh, with uh, this positive intent of, ha, what is the new discovery today? And uh, uh, again, Thank you for that, <laughs> right? Because uh, 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 that's Thank another you, thing Nora. yoga teaches you. Uh, uh, honor the people who have led you to that path and yes. who have held your hand. And you're still doing it by inviting me here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review, and join us next time.